My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus told his disciples this parable. A man going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant, and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him in reply, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter? Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have it guided back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. In America, each generation has tried to have a better life than their parents with a better living standard, better homes, better education, and so on. How likely do you think it is that today's youth will have a better life than their parents? The Gallup polling organization has asked that question for over 30 years. If you were being surveyed, how would you answer? 
The Pew Research Center conducted a similar survey that was just released a few weeks ago asking, thinking about the future of our country, in general, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic? As they went through a whole list of issues from marriage and family life to our country's ability to get along with other countries to dealing with moral and ethical issues, asking in general, how do you feel? What's troubling was that both firms found that people are more pessimistic now than at any other time in over 30 years. And that's only validated some of my own personal experiences serving as a chaplain at Montclair State University. I love working with college students and have been doing so now for over 16 years. And one of the things that was a universal characteristic for a young man or a young woman starting their college experience was this, this beautiful, precious, youthful idealism that they had. That sense of being able to do anything, which was only encouraged by different educators and professionals telling them to, to dream big. And they would take chances, and our responsibility as the adults was to try to help them navigate that, that spectrum of chances that went from the expanding of their minds and interests and experiences to the other extreme of recklessness, where they foolishly thought they were invincible. So those of us blessed to work with this age group tried to guide them through those extremes, encouraging ambition, reminding them of responsibilities, and sharing our personal life experience to hopefully help them make healthier, better, and better decisions. But in recent years, that idealism, that adventurous spirit, has notably diminished. Students have been struggling with depression and anxiety at levels that we haven't seen before, which isn't their fault. If the population as a whole is telling pollsters that they're pessimistic, why should we be surprised that our kids are, are picking up on that and feeling the same, becoming depressed and anxious about the future? And all of this has left me wondering if the real pandemic that's afflicted us in the last few years isn't COVID. It's defeatism, where people have, in a sense, given up believing that anything can get better collectively, and so they're turning inwardly. This defeatism, in one sense, is, is understandable. The, the global pandemic that had us locked in our homes for weeks and months at a time has traumatized a significant number of us. But years later, we still see and hear things that undermine our confidence in every possible institution everywhere we turn. Whether it's financial issues that are causing more and more unpredictability, News of war and terrorist attacks with graphic stories and images that are just horrific. All in this environment where there's been so much tension and division that's caused a breakdown in healthy dialogue and debate and just continued to breed mistrust. So it's certainly understandable why people feel defeatist. And we have to acknowledge our feelings and, and listen to them to get information about where people's minds and hearts are. But what's so frustrating is too many of us are giving in to those negative feelings and just conceding defeat. 
I don't need the polls and surveys to tell me what I've seen and experienced with these kids that I love on campus. We've had two suicides on our campus this semester. That's heart-wrenching on just so many levels. But on top of that, so many are numbing themselves with sex, drugs, and alcohol. And even the semblance of caution that so many would have offered just a few years ago by some of our professionals about those things has somewhat disappeared as our our government leaders have legalized marijuana. I say I can't even walk out of the Newman Center without catching a contact high sometimes. Being scared, acknowledging our fears, recognizing things that worry us, that's all understandable. But yielding to defeatism, convincing ourselves that there's nothing that can be done, nothing we can do, that's a lie straight from Satan himself from the bowels of hell that's just been accepted by far too many of us. And it's an important lie which Jesus confronts in today's gospel. Let's look at what happens in this parable with this this shmo at the end, this defeatist of the group. Each of the three men were given a certain number of talents, which was basically a measurement of wealth. Scholars can give you different formulas and calculations on how much, but they all agree it was a significant amount. One estimated that each talent could be equivalent to about half a million dollars. So using that theory, the one guy gets 2.5 million, the other gets 1 million, the other gets half a million. This defeatist takes half his half a million dollars and does nothing. He starts off saying, I knew you were a demanding person. Okay, so he knows the master has high expectations. Then he goes on, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. Okay, so now we hear that he's let his fear twist and distort not just his master's expectations, but the master himself basically calling him greedy and unjust which the guy doesn't realize unravels all his excuses, showing that, no, it wasn't fear that was crippling him. It was his laziness. Because as the master pointed out, had he just put the money in the bank, it would have at least made interest. It would have done something. This guy might have had legitimate fears, but he let that be an excuse for his selfishness and his self-centeredness. The guy has been wallowing in this shallow existence. The other thing to remember is that the master's not being unreasonable. In fact, we can kind of forget that right from the outset, we heard the master handed out these talents, each according to his ability. So the master wasn't putting an impossible task there before this guy. But here's the point. Doing nothing was not an option. And that's what resonated in my heart this past week, praying with these scriptures. Over three years ago, during the height of the the COVID pandemic, when we had to isolate at home, when we were told, don't even think about going to church. ShopRite, Home Depot, the liquor store, that was okay, but no, you could not go to church. And no, I'm not still bitter about the stupidity of that. But if anything, it was a great wake-up call for me. Because at some point during those weeks, I realized how easy it was for me to succumb to all those exterior voices that may or may not have had the best intentions 
or purest of motives. Whether it was a politician or a commentator or some pundit or celebrity, even ones I had chosen to listen to, whether it was cable news or some radio podcast or watching video after video online, I could feel how, how manipulated and, and tapped into feelings and emotions that left me outraged or discouraged or angry or afraid and making me think that the only thing I could do was to keep listening, keep following these people, sharing and whatever these talking heads were saying with everyone else. And in the process, being convinced to simply do nothing. It was a moment of clarity where I felt the Lord challenging me, saying, stop fixating on what you can't do. What can you do? And at the height of all that insanity, that meant severely cutting back on some of those exterior voices and just committing greater time to prayer, really learning about what fasting means and why fasting is such an important spiritual practice for everyone, finding ways that I could serve and give and being challenged to be a bit more creative and think outside the box, even with all these weird circumstances. It's why, with as awful an experience as the pandemic was for all of us, I'm grateful that God was able to use that to teach me some important lessons that were seriously life-changing. Because those defeatist thoughts and frustrations, they haven't gone away in the years that have followed. There are still temptations for sure to give in to them over and over and over again. I get text messages saying, did you read this thing that the Pope said or did? I see these reports saying, how many of these anti-Semitic things are happening on campuses that are being normalized, scaring the heck out of Jewish students and making them feel targeted and unsafe? When I read reports asking how bad the economy is, the crime in our cities, the migrant crisis, there are all kinds of things that legitimately have us uncertain and frustrated. And in response to them, it's easy to get lulled into thinking, the best thing for me to do is just keep my head down, protect what I have, and wait for something to change when things are safe again, whenever that might be. That kind of thinking is what this one talent schmo in the parable is doing in doing nothing. And Jesus expects better of us, namely to be alert to the things of God rather than obsessing over the things of this world. Remembering what St. Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians in today's second reading, we are children of the light, not of the night or darkness. So yes, acknowledging there are lots of things that are of darkness that we are aware of. There's sadly many more that we aren't aware of. And we can run through that whole list of things that make us pessimistic about the future of the nation or the world or even the church as we let our minds get weighed down by all that bad news. But to stop ourselves and ask ourselves, is Jesus asking me to fix the church, to save the country, to establish world peace, to end discrimination or alleviate world poverty? The question is ridiculous. Of course we say, no, I can't do that. But no one's asking us to. That's the beauty of this parable. If you think about it, everyone's given something. Everyone's entrusted with some responsibility. And the master isn't asking you to focus 
on how the guy with five talents or two talents or one talents is doing or not doing. He's saying, you, with what you've been given, what are you doing? So that means for each of us, it has to start with us evaluating our states in life. What non-monetary talents do I possess? What gifts and abilities do I have? What opportunities are before me? What responsibilities and commitments have I made? And just looking at how we're responding or not to all those things. Is God being glorified by what I'm doing and how I'm living through these things? Am I trying to be the best spouse that I can? The best son or daughter? Do I do my best in my job? Am I doing the basics just as best as I can? That's why that first reading from Proverbs is so beautiful. While using the example of a good wife, a good mother, who's so attentive and mindful to the normal day-to-day things, she's the embodiment of wisdom. The sacred author isn't contemplating heads of state or generals or CEOs or the artists. He's focusing on the ordinary, faithfully diligent as one who demonstrates true wisdom. So one of the most essential things is doing something, investing the talent, starting right where we are, doing the best we can right here and now. That's why in working with our college students on campus, we have these focused missionaries who are these recent college graduates who encourage students to have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. And as part of their outreach, they challenge their peers to pursue what they call the big three. They're the virtues that college students struggle with the most. Chastity, sobriety, and excellence. Trying to help rebuild, or in some cases build for the first time, a foundation that's not only important and essential in being a good disciple of Jesus Christ, but to help them be better students, better sons and daughters, better brothers and sisters. And for some, it takes a long time for them to commit to pursuing the the big three. Maybe it just starts with them being faithful to Sunday Mass, coming to adoration during the week, getting involved in other of our activities, going to a Bible study, or making a good confession for the first time in a long, long time. The thing is, I know Jesus calls all of us to holiness, and he wants what's best for us. And how each of us is going to get there is going to look different because we're all at different places and come from different points in our faith lives. And we have different life experiences. But the point is, what are we doing? That we're here at Mass today is great. But it's simply a starting point. It's not an end. The very word Mass comes from the Latin word Misa, And that's been used since the 6th or 7th century to describe the Catholic celebration of the Eucharist. And it comes from the conclusion of the celebration when the priest used to say in Latin, Misa est, which translated as, go forth, you're sent. For Catholic Christians at Mass, we're nourished on God's word in the scripture. We're fed with Jesus' body and blood in the Eucharistic host. 
And then we're sent to glorify the Lord with our lives. He doesn't expect us to solve every problem or even one single problem. But he does expect us to do something. As each of us listens to what that is personally and responds to it, all those collective efforts defeat defeatism and pessimism by bringing Christ's light and presence into this world.